Predominant practice number three, extraction. The following quote is by Leanne Betosamusake Simpson from her book, As We Have Always Done. The act of extraction removes all of the relationships that give whatever is being extracted meaning. Extracting is taking. Actually, extracting is stealing. It is taking without consent, without thought or care or even knowledge of the impacts that extraction has on the living things in that environment. That's always been a part of colonialism and conquest. Colonialism has always extracted the indigenous. Extraction of indigenous knowledge, indigenous women, indigenous peoples. End quote. Extraction is widespread within the field of research and social R&D in particular. In this module, we will examine the direct and indirect ways in which extraction manifests within social R&D. First, we will take a look at extraction as the severing from the relationships that give something meaning. As Simpson mentioned in the previous quote, one way of defining extraction is as the severing or the removing of the relationships that give whatever is being extracted meaning. This includes the severing of knowledge, information, processes, and products from their culture, their context, their lineage, and their origins. Cultural appropriation is an example of extraction. One example of the immense and long-term harm that this kind of extraction can cause is linked to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Published initially in 1943, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a theory of human motivation that posits that humans are motivated by five basic categories of needs, physiological, safety, love, esteem, and self-actualization. This theory is often presented as a hierarchy with physiological needs at the bottom and self-actualization at the top, with the assertion that when a lower level need is met, the next need on the hierarchy becomes our focus of attention. Despite Maslow's sudden death in 1970, this framework has become a mainstay not only within psychology, but has also infiltrated the worlds of business and design, among others. What is less known to most, and what I only learned last year, is that Maslow's framework of self-actualization is rooted in and informed by the Blackfoot worldview. Maslow stayed with the Siksika Nation Blackfoot Confederacy in the summer of 1938 before publishing, quote, unquote, his model of self-actualization. However, there was no mention of the indigenous lineage of this framework. In the process of extraction, the insights gleaned from the Blackfoot community were severed from the community's understanding of ancestral knowledge, spirituality, and multiple dimensions of reality. Maslow also failed to fully situate the individual within the context of community. For instance, if Maslow had more fully integrated Blackfoot perspectives, the model would be centered on multi-generational community actualization versus individual actualization and transcendence. Instead, Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been used over the years to reinforce the idea that we as humans are focused on individualistic pursuits and therefore thrive in individualistic cultures. More recent investigations into Maslow's work reveal that the hyper-popularized versions of his work are not entirely reflective of what he believed. To begin, he never created a pyramid shape to represent the hierarchy of needs. In fact, the image of a pyramid was created in the process of bringing Maslow's psychological work into management studies and has since taken on a life of its own. 
The pyramid depiction reinforces that people are motivated to satisfy only one need at a time, that a need must be fully satisfied before they move on to a higher level need on the pyramid, and that a satisfied need is no longer a motivator of behavior. This is not what Maslow believed. According to him, most people, quote, are partially satisfied in all of their basic needs and partially unsatisfied in all of their basic needs at the same time, end quote. This is actually more aligned with the indigenous worldview that human needs are not uniformly hierarchical, but rather highly interdependent with cultural values and laws defining how balance is achieved on personal and collective levels. We are also learning that closer to the end of his life, Maslow talked about a motivation higher than self-actualization, self-transcendence, or the desire to be connected and in service to something greater than oneself. While this is closer in belief to the Blackfoot understandings of community actualization, it wasn't picked up as swiftly, likely because of the dissonance it posed to the prevailing systems which are largely rooted in individualism. I share these details to reinforce that even though Maslow had good intentions, by severing his framework from its original indigenous lineage, he not only caused immense harm to the Blackfoot community, but also left his work vulnerable to be co-opted and misinterpreted by the dominant culture. The lineage, context, and relationships that surround a particular piece of knowledge or practice not only give it meaning, but also give it the stability, rootedness, and resilience to hold up in the face of adversity. This is what Maslow denied his work by not acknowledging its Blackfoot lineage. And these breaks in lineage and relationships are precisely what the systems of colonialism and capitalism depend on to thrive. It is easier to steal that which is not rooted. It is easier to commodify that which is not bound by relationship. Extraction is an age-old practice, a cornerstone of colonial culture, and this is just one of the ways it shows up in the world of research. We will dive deeper into the importance of lineage in an upcoming module. Extraction can also be defined as taking knowledge, information, process, and or product in a way that causes harm. In a research context, this includes opening people up in ways that we cannot close them back up. In other words, opening people up in a way that re-traumatizes. I will share one example of this based on a true story. A community-based organization in Toronto brought in design consultants from a private firm to help them figure out how they could best serve newcomer Filipinx youth in their community. Specifically, the focus was on Filipinx youth whose mothers immigrated to Canada through the federal live-in caregiver program. These youth were often separated from their mothers at a young age when she immigrated, and then once she had established some semblance of security in Canada, she would sponsor them to join her in Canada, often in their teenage years. To try and better understand the experience of these youth, the design consultants got the organization's youth workers, who had long-standing relationships with the youth, to connect them with the youth and then chose to meet with them on their own. The consultants used their quote-unquote ethnography-informed tools to get the youth to disclose some fairly intense experiences and did not close them back up. Remember that these are kids, many of whom thought their mothers abandoned them as babies because one day mom was there and the next day she was gone. Even more, the design consultants did not follow up with the youth workers at the organization 
to let them know that the youth had disclosed some rather intense experiences so that they could provide support accordingly. It was only when the youth workers happened to ask the youth about the research engagement that they realized that they were really affected and ultimately re-traumatized as a result of the experience. This was clearly an extractive approach which did not respect the basic principle that if you are opening people up, you have the responsibility to make sure you can close them back up or at least connect them to the necessary, age-appropriate, and culturally responsive resources. No amount of quotable quotes from participants featured in flashy conference presentations or gut-wrenching personal stories on aesthetically pleasing profile cards justifies the harm caused in this context. The following reflection prompts are intended to help you work through your own relationship to extraction, as well as the beliefs that you hold around it. I invite you to pause after each question and note down any immediate responses that emerge before diving deeper into this exploration. When have you, consciously or unconsciously, severed a concept, belief, practice, or framework from one or more of the relationships that give it meaning? What were the set of conditions that enabled that extraction, one, to take place, and two, to be seen as acceptable or even applauded? When have you experienced someone else extracting from your work by severing one or more of the relationships that give it meaning? In your view, what were the set of conditions that enabled that extraction, one, to take place, and two, to be seen as acceptable or even applauded? What thoughts, feelings, and or sensations did the example of the research engagement with the Philippinex youth elicit in you? Have you engaged in and or experienced a similar type of extraction? Does the analysis of this particular example shift how you think about your own experience? What are the ways in which you ensure that you are able to close people back up when you open them up? What lengths have you gone to to uncover quote-unquote good stories or quote-unquote juicy insights? At what cost? What were the set of conditions that justified that cost and or potential harm? I invite you to pause here and take some time to unpack your responses to these prompts before moving on to the next module. In this section, we will continue our deep dive into extraction, this time looking at how extraction is perpetuated in the form of non-reciprocal value exchange. Extraction can also be defined as a transaction in which the value exchange between researchers and participants is not reciprocal. One of the most tangible manifestations of this kind of extraction is the resistance on the part of researchers to paying research participants fairly, or at all, for their time and labor. In the words of social designer Sara Fatala, quote, As a researcher, I am being paid as is the driver who takes me to the research location and the interpreter who helps me translate. Why shouldn't participants get paid too? Like all of us on the team, they are sacrificing their time in order to contribute to the research effort, and they often incur expenses too, like transportation to the research site or airtime to coordinate with the team. 
There's also a significant opportunity cost, like time not spent caring for children or minding a store. In Haiti, some of the communities we spoke with were subsistence farmers, growing just enough pigeon peas, maize, and millet to survive. Time away from the farm can literally mean less food on the table. In more practical terms, compensation helps recruit participants and serves as a very justified token of appreciation. We could not complete the project without them. End quote. The resistance to compensating participants is also linked to our inability to see and acknowledge the act of sharing one's lived experience as labor. This is reflected in giving participants bus tokens, but not compensating them at all or fairly for the time that they spend sharing with us. When thinking about what fair compensation for this kind of labor might look like, it's important to recognize that we're not just paying participants for the time that they spend with us, but also for the years of experiencing, surviving, learning, and integrating all that they share with us in that time. We may also have resistance to compensating participants because we believe we are providing them with more value than we actually are. For example, after a vulnerable disclosure on the part of a research participant, qualitative researchers and or ethnographers often walk away with a sense of accomplishment, feeling pride in the fact that someone felt comfortable enough with them to disclose such sensitive information. What they often don't realize is that for the participant, this interaction usually is not the equivalent of telling a friend what happened to them to get it off their chest. Rather, it's the participant doing the work of trying to explain their lived experience to someone whom they've never met before and have no relationship with. In other words, this isn't a free therapy session provided by the researcher to the participant. Rather, it is more often an educational experience provided by the participant to the researcher, which consists of content and context that would otherwise be inaccessible to the researcher and therefore must be compensated accordingly. We as researchers may also believe that the promise that the community's input will inform a report that may then be used to push for some meaningful change in the future is enough compensation for participants. Here, we use the potential and promise of a useful outcome to justify uncompensated labor in the process. In actuality, as researcher and designer Sasha Costanza-Chalk describes, in most design processes, the bulk of the benefits end up going to the professional designers and their institutions. Products, patents, processes, credit, visibility, fame, the lion's share goes to the professional design firms and designers, end quote. Lastly, we may also believe that participants are sharing because they want to and that their consent means additional compensation is not warranted. Which begs the question, does that mean that you and I should not be paid for our work because we want to do it or enjoy doing it? When we think of compensation and reciprocity within a research context, we often assume that monetary compensation is the only option. Adequate financial compensation that is proportional to the labor undertaken by research participants is especially important in moving towards some semblance of equity in a largely capitalistic society. And what does it look like to simultaneously build models of value and ways of working that don't center money in the same way? In an upcoming module on reciprocity, we will explore what it means to think of reciprocity in a research setting as an exchange of gifts rather than commodities. 
We will dig deeper into how we might offer value to participants during the research engagement itself, rather than assume that a promise of future change is adequate. The following reflection prompts are intended to help you work through your own relationship to extraction, as well as the beliefs that you hold around it. I invite you to pause after each question and note down any immediate responses that emerge before diving deeper into this exploration. What is your relationship to the practice of paying those you engage in research for their time? What factors do you take into account when determining what is an appropriate form or amount of compensation for research participants? Do you consider the amount of time they spend engaging with you? The energy invested in translating their experience for you? The travel time? The lived experiences that inform the insights that they share with you? Do you consider the opportunity cost of them spending this time with you? Do you consider the cost of potential care or support that they may need to seek out after the engagement? What internal beliefs or external barriers prevent you or your colleagues from seeing the sharing of one's lived experiences as labor that deserves to be compensated? Have you had an experience of feeling good after a participant discloses something vulnerable to you? What assumptions on your part may have contributed to this feeling? When have you used the promise of future change to justify not compensating participants or compensating them inadequately in real time? How might we think about compensation and reciprocity as ongoing? How might we deliver immediate, short-term, and long-term value to the people and communities we engage in research? In what ways might the tool of honoraria, which are often shared under the caveat that, quote, we know this is not at all representative of your experience and insight, and instead, this is just a small token of our appreciation for your time and energy. End quote. How do honoraria like this prevent more radical and sustainable change around fairly compensating participants for their labor? Based on what participants and or communities have articulated to you about their needs and experiences, what forms of reciprocity outside of monetary compensation might be of value to them? I invite you to pause here and take some time to unpack your responses to these questions before moving on to the next module. In this section, we will continue our deep dive into the practice of extraction, specifically the practice of getting quote-unquote community ambassadors to do the extraction for us. Another manifestation of extraction in the social R&D sector involves sending in quote-unquote community ambassadors to do the work of extraction for us. These community ambassadors often share one or more identities with the participants or the communities we are trying to engage and this lived experience tends to give them more access to participants. Often, these community ambassadors are brought on for the diversity they contribute to a team and the access they provide to people and communities that would otherwise be inaccessible to the institution. They add color, they can speak the language, they understand the cultural norms, 
and they are trusted by the community. However, their diversity of thought and culture are not as enthusiastically welcomed and are often resisted. Author Austin Channing Brown describes this resistance through a racial lens. Quote, Whiteness constantly polices the expression of blackness allowed within its walls, attempting to accrue no more than what's necessary to affirm itself. It wants to see a black person seated at the table, but doesn't want to hear a dissenting viewpoint. It wants to pat itself on the back for helping poor black folks through missions or urban projects, but has no interest in learning from black people's wisdom, talent, and spiritual depth. Whiteness wants enough blackness to affirm the goodness of whiteness, the progressiveness of whiteness, the open-heartedness of whiteness. Whiteness likes a trickle of blackness, but only that which can be controlled." End quote. In the example that I described about design consultants engaging with Philippinex youth in the previous section, the majority white consultants recruited the organization's settlement and youth workers, many of whom are of Philippinex heritage, to be quote-unquote crew members and co-design with them. In truth, the consultants leveraged the relationships that these workers had built with the youth to get access to them, and once they had access, they completely diminished any and all experience and expertise that the youth workers had to offer to the project. Even worse, community ambassadors are also convenient scapegoats when something goes wrong. They weren't innovative enough. They couldn't think outside the box. They couldn't rally the community. They couldn't see the broader vision. This practice absolves the researchers and the institution of the responsibility that they have to cultivate trusting relationships with the communities they are supposedly serving. Echoing author Austin Channing Brown, Quote, it's so easy to believe the pretty pictures on the website filled with racial diversity, to buy into the well-crafted statements of purpose, to enjoy being invited into the process of quote-unquote being part of the change. The role of the bridge builder sounds appealing until it becomes clear how often that bridge is your broken back. End quote. Being a bridge builder in the sense that Brown describes takes a toll on the body, mind, and spirit. As the bridge builder, you feel the dissonance that is created when a relationship is unbalanced and extractive, but the nature of your role is to keep the peace. You find yourself explaining and justifying the extraction to the people you're supposed to be looking out for. You feel guilty for not being able to adequately advocate for them, for not being able to make yourself heard. You feel like a pawn in a game that is rigged. You are being harmed, and you are being extracted from. And more often than not, this emotional labor is invisibilized and not compensated either. In many ways, this quote-unquote community ambassador model takes its inspiration from the settler colonial practice of approaching key local community members with the promise of more and better and sending them in as missionaries into their own communities to preach the gospel. In the world of research, we use coded words like local champions and positive deviants to extract labor and access through what is essentially repackaged, quote-unquote representative, quote-unquote culturally sensitive colonialism. The extent to which we have engaged and continue to engage in extractive practice within research can be challenging to sit with. 
One of the key takeaways for me has been the ways in which harmful ideologies and practices continue to mutate with the times and be reborn under the guise of seemingly progressive best practices like quote-unquote human-centered design and quote-unquote community engagement. While the insidious nature of extractivism can make it feel like there's no way out, I believe that the alternatives are already here and embodied among the same communities that the dominant culture seeks to suppress. In the words of Nishnabe scholar Leanne Betasamosake Simpson, quote, the alternative to extractivism is deep reciprocity. It's respect, it's relationship, it's responsibility, and it's local, end quote. We will explore more of what this can look like in the reciprocity module. The following prompts are intended to help you work through your own relationship to extraction, as well as the beliefs that you hold around it. I invite you to pause after each question and note down any immediate responses that emerge before diving deeper into this exploration. When have you engaged quote-unquote community ambassadors or the equivalent in your work? What were yours or your organization's motivations in doing so? What thoughts, feelings, and or sensations does Brown's observation that whiteness constantly polices the expressions of blackness allowed within its walls bring up for you? Have you experienced and or enabled, consciously or unconsciously, this kind of policing? Have you had the experience of being a bridge builder between your organization and the people and or communities it is engaging? How would you describe your experience of this role? How does the comparison of the quote-unquote community ambassador model to practices of settler colonialism complicate your appraisal of this model? Within your field of work, what are some of the ways in which harmful ideologies and practices from the past have mutated with the times and re-emerged, packaged as present-day best practices? I invite you to pause here and take some time to unpack your responses to these questions before moving on to the next module.